Our scripture reading is found in Isaiah chapter 40. We'll commence our reading at the opening verse of the chapter. Isaiah chapter 40, commencing our reading at verse 1. Comfort ye, comfort ye my people, saith your God. Speak ye comfortably to Jerusalem, and cry unto her that her warfare is accomplished, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she hath received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. The voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough places plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. The voice said, Cry. And he said, What shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all the goodliness thereof is as the flower of the field. The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, because the Spirit of the Lord bloweth upon it. Surely the people is grass. The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand forever. O Zion, that bringest good tidings, get thee up into the high mountain. O Jerusalem, that bringest good tidings, lift up thy voice with strength. Lift it up, be not afraid. Say unto the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God will come with strong hand, and his arm shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his work before him. He shall feed his flock like a shepherd. He shall gather the lambs with his arm, and carry them in his bosom, and shall gently lead those that are with young. Who hath measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, and meted out heaven with the span, and comprehended the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales, and the hills in a balance. Who hath directed the Spirit of the Lord, or being his counsellor, hath taught him. With whom took he counsel, and who instructed him, and taught him in the path of judgment, and taught him knowledge, and showed to him the way of understanding. Behold, the nations are as a drop of a bucket, and are counted as the small dust of the balance. Behold, he taketh up the isles as a very little thing, and Lebanon is not sufficient to burn, nor the beasts thereof sufficient for a burnt offering. All nations before him are as nothing, and they are counted to him less than nothing and vanity. And we just move down to verse 28 now. Hast thou not known, hast thou not heard, that the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, fainteth not, neither is weary. There is no searching of his understanding. He giveth power to the faint, and to them that have no might, he increaseth strength. Even the youths shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary, and they shall walk and not faint. Ending our reading there at the end of that 40th chapter of Isaiah, trusting that God will add his blessing to the reading of his precious and holy truth for Christ's sake. Amen. Our text is found in verse 3 
of Isaiah chapter 40. The voice of one of him that crieth in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Now the person that uh, this message is uh, directed to is John the Baptist. Uh, and John the Baptist is the voice of him that cries in the wilderness, as we discover from the New Testament. He came proclaiming in the wilderness this message, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. And I believe, of course, that that word comes also to us. We have a duty to prepare the way of the Lord and to make straight in the desert a highway for our God. We have a duty to prepare the way of the Lord in our own lives. And then we have a duty to prepare the way for the Lord to come, to come into our churches, to come into our communities, to come into our homes and to come into our society. We have got to make preparation for the Lord. In ancient times when great leaders, great captains and great kings uh, were making their way uh, across lands that didn't have the roads that we have, uh, maybe they were blocked up ways and thorns and uh, other bushes uh, in their way, they would send forth an advance party. And the advance party would go with supplies, but they would also go to open up a way before those great leaders so that they might have a smooth pathway through. And so when they came, there was a roadway there where there hadn't been a roadway before. They came to ford a river. There was a way across that there hadn't been before and they were able to take their vast armies across because the advance party had gone ahead of them and the advance party had made preparation. That is what we are to be. We are to be an advance party for the Saviour. John the Baptist was an advance party of one. He cried in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Now as we think about these words, you'll notice the place from which the cry for preparation comes. It comes from the wilderness. The voice of one crying in the wilderness. John is not, we might say, mainstream. Because mainstream were the high priest and the other priests and the Jewish leaders and they were out of step with God. They had become ritualists, they had become bound up in petty rules that they had manufactured themselves and they were not declaring the word of God, they were not making a highway for God, they were leading the people into self-righteousness and into hypocrisy John the Baptist's voice was a voice in the wilderness. And that has become synonymous with someone who is out of step with what the vast majority believe and practice. And today we might say the church is a voice in the wilderness. Mainstream 
is against the truth of God. We find so much today that is antagonistic to the Bible. All the things that are happening, the laws that are being passed, the persecution, if I may call it that, of Christian people. I'm thinking only of our own society. It seems as if the net is closing upon us and uh, the vast majority of people don't believe what we believe, don't want to believe what we believe and are antagonistic to what we believe. And the evangelical church is a voice in the wilderness. But then sometimes we've got to say that we become in our lives so compromised, so taken up with the world that the voice of God seems to come to us from a distance. We hear it from afar off. The voice of God appears like a voice in the wilderness. And if we want to hear what God is saying to us, we need to go out into that wilderness, out into that quiet place. And there we need to listen what God, to what God has to say to us. John the Baptist was a voice in the wilderness. He was a lonely, marginalised figure. The church is a lonely, marginalised body. And very often we ourselves are uh, so far from God that we can only hear his voice in the distance calling to us from the wilderness to, to get away from the mainstream, to get away from the compromise and to get out into that separated place where we will have fellowship with the Lord and feel his nearness, his touch and his presence. So the place from which that voice comes is the wilderness. And look what it says to us. It tells us that we are to prepare the way of the Lord to make straight in the desert a highway for our God. It's telling us what we are to do, but it's also telling us that we are to make this highway for a particular person. We are to make a highway for our God. And as we read through the chapter, you may have noticed something of the greatness of this person for whom we are to make preparation, for whom we are to make a highway. And you will see his greatness in many of the verses. Go down to verse 12 and it says, Who hath measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? And the picture that is set before us is of the mighty oceans held just in the hollow of God's hand. How much water can you hold in the hollow of your hand? Just a little amount. Hardly enough to satisfy the smallest thirst. Slightly thirsty, you get a little drop of water and you take it to your mouth. It's so small. And yet, in the hollow of God's hand, he holds the mighty oceans. Think of the great oceans. Think of the great seas of the world. 
And God, in a sense, holds the, the oceans. He holds the rivers. He holds the seas in the hollow of his hand. You see, we are to make preparation for a very great God. He is no ordinary person. Nowadays, people have a low view of God. They do not see that God is great. They do not see that he is omnipotent. They do not see that he is eternal. They do not see that he's infinite. The shorter catechism says that God is a spirit. Infinite, eternal and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness and truth. And that little statement that tells us something about God and that uh, which it tells us has been drawn from the scriptures. That little statement, if we were to spend time contemplating it, tells us of a God who is vast and great and powerful. He holds the waters in the hollow of his hand. He meets out the heaven with the span. And the span is just a small <coughs> distance, reckoned to be about nine inches. As if God can measure. God can measure the vast heavens. Now, you imagine what it would be like if you had a ruler. And there you are, nine inches at a time, trying to measure the heavens. It would take you to eternity to work it all out. God can calculate every distance. He can reach out to every distance in an instant. That's how vast the Lord is. And it says also that he comprehends the dust of the earth in a measure. And some have said, Matthew Henry in particular, that that measure is just what you hold uh, between your thumb and your fingers. Just what you can hold in your hand. And he holds the dust of the earth in his hand, between his thumb, as it were, and his fingers. So as you go through this chapter, you, you get an exalted view of God, measuring the waters with the hollow of his hand, meeting out the heaven with a span, comprehending the dust of the earth in a measure, weighing the mountains in scales. Those great mountains. It's as if God just lifts them up and sets them on the scales and says, there's the weight of that mountain there, there's Everest, that's what it weighs. There's Ben Nevis, that's what it weighs. It's as if he can just lift them up, and he can. Uh, God is almighty. He weighs the mountains in scales, the hills in a balance. The islands are as nothing before him. The nations, it says, as a drop in a bucket, and they are so small. And if, if all the nations, we're thinking of seven billion people at present on this earth, if all the nations are just a little drop, an insignificant drop from a bucket before God, what are we as a small fraction, a, a, an almost infinitesimal fraction of the whole? And then as individuals, how small we are. We are so small. God is so great. And we are told a voice is coming to us from the wilderness. And it says, prepare ye the way 
of the Lord. You see, man's insignificance. You see, God's greatness. It's not just God's power uh, and his infinity that are in view here. When you go to verse 9, you discover something. Sorry, verse 11. You discover that he shall feed his flock like a shepherd. He shall gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom and shall gently lead those that are with young. That, that, that introduces us to another aspect of this great creator who is ours. It shows us his care for us. You see, greatness and omnipotence might terrify us because many of the great and mighty are tyrannical. They have no interest in the individual, no time uh, for men that are beneath them. They treat them with contempt. But here is the Lord, and he's likened to a shepherd. What care the shepherd takes of his flock. The vast majority of farmers are good to their animals. Uh, and I say that uh, with great confidence. Very few farmers are cruel to their animals. You, you will hear if a farmer is cruel to his animals. He'll be taken up for cruelty. But that's the exception. That's not the rule. The farmer cares for his animals. Some might say, well, uh, it's in his interest to do so. But it's also, I would say, in his heart to do so. A farmer cares for his animals. The shepherd cares for his sheep. He doesn't want to lose one of them. Christ made that very clear when he said, What man of you, uh, having an hundred sheep, if he lose one of them, will not leave the ninety and nine in the wilderness and go after that which is lost until he find it. And he says that uh, when he has found it, he'll place it on his shoulders and he'll bring it home and he'll call his friends and neighbours together and he'll say, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. Christ was speaking of uh, the experiences of people uh, in regard to what the shepherd does. The shepherd cares for the sheep. And here in this verse 11 it says, He shall lead his flock like a shepherd. He shall gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom and shall gently lead those that are with young. There is the tenderness of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is almighty. He's infinite in his power. But he has a heart for people. He cares for men and women. And in particular, he cares for his sheep. His own people that are redeemed with his precious blood. He leads them. And doesn't the psalmist tell us of how he leads them? He leadeth me beside the still waters. Still waters, that's a place of quietness, of refreshing. And, you know, it reminds us of the place of prayer. Do we not sometimes call it 
the quiet place. And do we not speak of having our quiet time? The still <coughs> waters where they're gentle, where uh, the sheep are not terrified because they're easily frightened. He brings us into that quiet place. He leads us into the green pastures. And some have said, well, we have 66 green pastures. The books of the Bible. When we go to the scriptures with great delight. We read the word of God. We meditate upon the word of God. And many times we read a familiar passage and the Lord speaks to us. Even from the familiar passage and we say, I thought I knew that a particular a portion of God's word. And I didn't think I would get anything from it because it was so familiar to me. But as I sat with it, the Lord opened it up to me afresh and he opened up new things out of it to me. And I was really blessed in reading the scriptures. The shepherd leads us into the green pastures. He leads us beside the still waters. And it says here, he leads gently those that are with young. The ones that could not be driven. The ones that, that needed help. He carries the lambs in his bosom. Here is a clear picture for us of the kindness and the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have his greatness described, the vastness of his power, the vastness of his knowledge. But we also have his kindness, his gentleness, his love set before us. And where is that best expressed? It is best expressed when we go to the cross of Calvary. When we pause there and look upon the Saviour, did we not sing about it? I saw one hanging on a tree in agonies and blood who fixed his loving eyes on me as near his cross I stood. Oh, can it be upon a tree the Saviour died for me. My soul is thrilled my heart is filled to think he died for me. You go to the cross. And there at the cross of Calvary, as you meditate upon the person, as you meditate upon the work, as you grasp the enormity of what took place there, you see how much the Lord Jesus Christ cared. You see what kind of a shepherd he is. He said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. So, who are we preparing for? We are preparing for the one who really cares for us. We're preparing for one who is great, infinitely great. And we're preparing for one who is infinitely loving. That is our task to prepare for him. Now, how are we to do that? How are we to prepare for Christ to come? We've seen how great the person is who is to come. How are we to prepare for him? Well, verse 4 of this chapter really gives us the answer. It says, every valley 
shall be exalted, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough places plain. I've described to you what happened when great people were going perhaps on, on a march of conquest. They would send the advance party and they would uh, cut down the trees, cut down uh, the thorns and uh, they would sort out the roads and uh, they would put a, a bridge across where a bridge was needed. Uh, they would find a way of fording the river so that uh, when the leader came, the pathway for him was smooth uh, and he could go across and there uh, he could make his conquest uh, of those who perhaps were opposed to him. Well, this is the type of work we have to do as the advanced party uh, for the Lord. It says, every valley shall be exalted. What is a valley? It's a low place. Uh, and if you go down into the valley, you have to come up again. And that's uh, more difficult to do. Down you go, up you come. You fill up the valley. You fill up the low places. The valleys need to be exalted. What are those low places? Well, low views of the Lord. We tend to have far too low a view of the Lord Jesus Christ. You can't have too high a view of him. But you certainly can have far too low a view of him. The world out there has a very low view of Christ. You hear men and women and they use the precious name of Christ blasphemously. They swear, but they're not swearing by him, they're swearing against him. You see the workman with his hammer and he hits his thumb with the hammer. Whose name does he take? He takes the name of Christ. And he's not worshipping. He's not praying. He's cursing the name of Christ. And, and really, what that person is doing is, is expressing the, the hatred that is in his heart for Jesus Christ. He has a very low view of Christ when he uses his name as a swear word. And if we are to prepare the way for the Lord, we've got to have exalted views of Christ. How am I to receive an exalted view of Christ? I see him here. I see him in this book. He's described here. And I will have an exalted view of Christ as I spend time with him. As I spend time in his presence. My heart will be drawn out towards him drawn out to him and as I enter into fellowship with him I begin to understand his greatness you think of men uh, who were given an exalted view of the Lord think of Isaiah in the year that King Isaiah died he says I saw the Lord high high and lifted up and he said his train filled the temple and he heard the seraphim crying out one to another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. <clears throat> Isaiah got an exalted view of the Lord that day. 
And that's what we need as we draw near to God, as we spend time in his word, as we spend time at the throne of grace, we get an exalted view of the Lord, the valley is being filled up. But then, on top of having a low view of the Lord, men have a low view of sin. You see, people think sin's nothing. It's a trifle. They have a very low view. They, they laugh at sin. The Bible says, fools make a mock at sin. They, they, they think it's a joke. But it's not. Sin is a dreadful thing. It was Thomas Watson, I think, who made the comment that the awfulness of sin, he said, how rank is that poison, one drop of which can poison an entire ocean. And then he said, how dreadful was that sin of Adam's that polluted all of mankind. So sin is a dreadful thing. Adam's sin plunged the whole human race into wickedness and brought the judgment and curse of God upon all mankind. You dare not, and I dare not, have a low view of sin. That valley has got to be raised up. We've got to have a true view of sin. We've got to see it as it is. And then, of course, man has a low view of redemption. The, the wonderful work of the cross. Man thinks lightly of it. And in fact, man thinks his own works are as good as, as anything that Christ has done. So if you go to an unsaved person, you say to them, you realise you need to be saved, what will they say? They say, well, I'm not a bad person. I go to church, or I read my Bible. Uh, I'm kind to my neighbours. If there's a charitable box handed to me, I'll put something in it. I'm not a bad person. And I think that when... God comes to judge at the end of the day. He'll be, uh, he'll be happy with my life and I'll get to heaven. So they're really saying, uh, my self-help, my self-redemption is just as good as what Christ has done on the cross. I don't need what he has done. He didn't really need to come and die for me. Maybe for some uh, really wretched person, some horrible murderer uh, some other uh, vile criminal who has committed some horrendous deeds. He, he might have needed to die for them. But he didn't need to die to me for me. They're really equating their work with the work of the cross. I, I'm okay. I don't need to be saved. They have a low view of Christ's redemption. A low view of it. Every valley has got to be exalted. And then it says the mountains and hills uh, need to be made low. And what are they? Well, are there not mountains of sin in our lives? Mountains of pride and selfishness and unconfessed sin. Mountains of uh, bitterness. We're so easily annoyed with other people that we think have offended us. And then there's, uh, there's a problem of Bad relationships, sometimes bad relationships amongst the people of God. This brother doesn't get on with that brother. And my, they're, they're having a go at one another. Uh, and there's resentment and it leads even to hatred. It's so wrong. And there's, there's all these mountains. Prejudice, pride, 
bitterness, nastiness, envy, spitefulness, and all those mountains of unconfessed sin have got to be removed. The mountains have to come down. That's what the, the Bible is saying to us here. And then there's crooked ways that need to be straightened. And what crookedness there is in each one of us. What insincerity at times. What hypocrisy. And uh, uh, as somebody has said, the best of men are but men at the best of times. And we can be insincere, we can be shallow, and, and we can be twisted. You know, sometimes uh, Christians surprise you. Uh, they can pray like an angel in a prayer meeting. And uh, then after the prayer meeting's over, uh, something upsets them. And you see another side to their character. And you say, I'm shocked. I heard that man or that woman praying. And I thought that was the holiest person that I had ever listened to. And, and I felt that heaven was coming down uh, with, with blessing when that person prayed. And then I saw them in another context. And they were a different person altogether. They went out of the prayer meeting and they changed. Or they went out of the Sunday service and uh, in work the next day they were a different kind of person and I was shocked prayed like an apostle and then lived in a very contrary fashion and the crooked ways in our lives the insincerities the hypocrisies of our lives they need to be dealt with because we cannot have blessing if there's a twistedness about us, the psalmist said, If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. And you know, I, I'm not just addressing you, I'm addressing myself in this. Uh, we, we're all uh, so, so twisted at times. I'm not saying that we're all twisted, uh, that we're completely warped. I'm saying there are times when we're twisted. Times when we're far away from God and we have a low view of God, a low view of sin, a low view of God's wonderful redemption. We forget it uh, and uh, we become self-righteous. And then we have all those uh, things, those bitternesses and chips on our shoulder uh, and uh, selfishness and self-importance and so on. All of those things stand in the way uh, of uh, the, the smooth pathway of the Lord coming into our midst with blessing and with power. And then it says the rough places need to be made smooth. The rough places are harsh, aren't they? You run your hand across something that's rough, and before you know where you are, uh, there's blood on your hand. It's rough. And we are rough at times. We're harsh. We can be so unfeeling. And a lack of Feeling is a harshness. If you don't feel for your fellow man, don't we often bemoan the fact that our hearts are cold? We say, uh, there was a time when I was on fire for God. There was a time when I prayed and my heart was broken. 
I shed tears for loved ones and I shed tears for people that I work with and I shed tears for my neighbours and I was, I, I was sore at heart when I thought of men and women perishing in their sins. George Whitfield, when he preached, it is said, rarely preached without shedding tears. And very often, at the end of his message, he would put on uh, the, the black cap. Uh, and he was acting as a judge would have acted who was pronouncing a, a sentence of death on a criminal who had been found guilty. And Whitfield would don that black cap. I know he was a theatrical person, but he wasn't, he wasn't an actor. He felt it. But on that black cap, and with tears streaming down his cheeks, he would tell the unsaved of their doom if they didn't repent. There was a softness in the heart of George Whitfield. And there was a softness in the hearts of, of those who preached with him in that great 18th century awakening. George Whitfield attracted people because he was attracted to people. Because he himself cared for people. He wasn't a harsh man. He wasn't a hard man. He didn't just stand up and declare uh, the word of God unfeelingly. He felt what he preached. You know that in the Six Mile Water Revival, there was a preacher uh, under whose ministry that revival really began. But he knew only the law and harshness. He was James Glendinning. And he preached the people into a state of terror. But he didn't have the softness of the gospel to lead them to Christ. And other preachers had to come in. Men who were evangelical, thoroughly evangelical. And they preached the grace of God, the beauty of Christ, the wonder of the cross. And as a result of Glendinning's law work, his harshness, uh, mingled with the, the softness of the, 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 the gospel and the, the beauty of the Saviour, multitudes were wonderfully saved. And we have to uh, get that roughness taken away, that harshness, that unfeelingness. The Bible says we're to prepare the way of the Lord. Every valley shall be exalted. We've got to have an exalted view of Christ, an exalted view uh, if I may put it this way, of sin, we've got to see it in its true colours. And we've got to have an exalted view of the wonderful redemption that's provided at great cost for sinners. And then we've got to have the mountains and the hills, the, those mountains of pride and bitterness uh, and sin. We've got to have them removed by true repentance, turning uh, and confessing our failures to the Lord. And then we see uh, the twistedness has to go. There's got to be absolute sincerity as far as lies within us in our lives. We've got to be transparent people. People, uh, they look at us and uh, what they see is what we are. C.H. Uh, Spurgeon once got a false tooth. And he said to his friend, uh, a man called Williams, he said, that's the only false thing in my mouth. One tooth that replaced one that he had lost. A false tooth. The only false thing in his mouth. 
And C.H. Spurgeon was a transparent person. That man uh, was clear in what he felt, clear in what he preached. He lived what he preached. He lived it at home. He lived it amongst his people. He lived it wherever he went. And it's no wonder that he was greatly used uh, by the Lord. We've got to get all the insincerity out of our lives and then the harshness, the unfeelingness, the roughness. It has got to be made smooth so that uh, we are not hard, hard hearted and cruel and unkind, but tender hearted as the Bible enjoins upon us. And I, I want to finish with, with this thought what the consequence will be. Uh, and to get the consequence, I'm, I'm not asking you to turn it over, but Luke chapter 3 and verse 6 brings in something that's, that's not found here or found in Matthew or Mark's gospel. It says, And all flesh shall see the salvation of our God. All flesh. What will happen when we prepare the way of the Lord? This, the the, the uh, the way for this glorious and wonderful person. What will happen? The Bible says, All flesh shall see the salvation of the Lord. We will see the Lord. All, multitudes all around us will, will see, will see the, the, the wonder of God's salvation. And that happens, you know, in a time of revival. I remember reading of... A couple, I think it was a father and daughter, and they travelled from Liverpool to Wales at the time of the early 20th century Welsh revival. As they were on the train, they, they were wondering, how will we know when we've reached the scene of the revival? And they asked the conductor on the train, and they were told, you'll know when you've got there. You'll know when you've got there. And sure enough, when they came within what you might call the scope of that revival, they could feel it. They could actually feel it. And Luke says, All flesh shall see the salvation of our God. When, when we are right with God, and our hearts are right with God, when we have prepared the way of the Lord, other people all around us will feel it. You cannot have a revival without people all around you being affected. The unsaved being affected. In 1859, the Roman Catholic Church was so concerned about what was taking place and people getting saved even out of their own church that they, they were giving people holy water to sprinkle on themselves to stop them from being contaminated by the revival as they saw it. You see, they were affected. They saw what was taking place in one area. It was said that no work was done on the farm for six weeks, or at least in the fields for six weeks, because people were so taken up with what God was doing. The whole community was in a state of alertness, the whole community was saturated with the presence of God. 
And Luke says, all flesh shall see the salvation of our God. And that tells me something. It tells me that if we're not living aright, we block the view to the cross. We stand in the way of people seeing the greatness of Christ and the wonder of his redemption. You prepare the way and it says all flesh shall see the salvation of our God. Revival begins with God's people, a preparation of heart and life amongst God's people, my heart, your heart, and when we have prepared our hearts, the Lord comes down. And, and all around us see it. All around us feel it. I'm not saying that everybody around us will get saved, but multitudes do. A hundred thousand in 1859, according to the calculations made, a hundred thousand in Wales in the same year. The Welsh revival of the early 20th century spread to, to many other countries. Many different countries were influenced. I've just read a book on the 1907 Korean revival that affected that country tremendously. So the Lord moved and the Lord blessed. All flesh could see the salvation of our God. They got a clear view of the cross. So you can see how important it is that uh, we should be right with God. That uh, we should prepare the way of the Lord so that others then would see clearly the person of Christ, the work of Christ, and multitudes of them would be one uh, for Christ. But what stands in the way of an unsaved person? If you're not right with God, there's one mountain, one great mountain, that comes between you and God. And it's insurmountable. Insurmountable. Unless you repent. Unless you come to Christ. You cannot remove that mountain of sin yourself. You have no ability to do it. But if you confess it. And repent of it. And ask God to deal with it. The Bible says... If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The mountain is taken away. The Bible speaks of our sins being cast into the depths of the sea. I'll just use this to finish with. The highest mountain is Mount Everest, 29,000 feet high. The deepest ocean at its deepest point is the Indian Ocean and it's 36,000 feet deep at its deepest point. If your sins were like an Everest and they were lifted and they were set in the depths of the Indian Ocean, there would be 7,000 feet, more than a mile to spare. They're out of sight. And what God is saying to us is that even if your sins are like a mountain, even if they're like a mountain and they stand before you, you confess them, you repent of them, you ask God's forgiveness, he put them out of sight. They're, they'll be gone. They'll be gone from you. They'll be gone forever. 
and God will remember them against you no more forever. What a God. What a saviour. What a friend. If you're not saved, I say, come to him. Seek him today. Taste and see that the Lord is good.